Hello, it's Thursday 18th of January. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, Gary Bowman and I will discuss the outlook for travel and tourism in Vietnam with our special guest, Mike Tatarski. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So today, we're going to take a deep dive into Vietnam, which counts one of the region's fastest growing travel sectors, but was hit hard, as we all were, by the COVID pandemic. To help us piece together the recovery outlook, we're delighted to welcome back Ho Chi Minh City-based Mike Tatarski, who is founder of the Vietnam Weekly Newsletter, which regularly reports on key travel issues. So Mike, thanks for coming back onto the show. How are you doing? And how has the start of 2024 been for you? Yeah, thanks for having me. Good to be back. Uh, and I apologize in advance if the audio is not great. I'm not with my normal setup. Um, yeah, things have been good. Uh, I know it's been a while since we talked. So, as you said, a lot has changed. I, I guess I should also add professionally, I'm, I'm now also working for a uh, consulting firm called Clickable Impact, which does actually does a lot of work on sustainable tourism um, with good relevance here. They're based in Hanoi. I'm still in Ho Chi Minh City. But yeah, the year's off to a uh, fine start, <laughs> even if global news is uh, not great. But yeah, things are good here. That's good to hear. So we've got plenty to talk about over the next 30 minutes or so. You mentioned it's a long time since you've been on the show. It was actually the 16th of March, 2022. So it's almost two years ago. Uh, at that time, Vietnam and most of Southeast Asia was, was readying to reopen after the pandemic. So much has happened since then. In general, what have been some of the hottest issues that you've been reporting on for Vietnam Weekly since then and kind of through 2023? Yeah, so, I mean, beyond tourism, which, as you said, I keep an eye on, uh, I, certainly the anti-corruption campaign has perhaps been the top story. Um, I mean, I'll try not to ramble too much on that, but um, a major effort by the government to crack down on uh, corruption, both in the public and private sectors, which is, has been has led to some huge developments. I mean, um, you know, last year the president stepped down and a couple of deputy prime ministers uh, stepped down as well. Um, a lot of a lot of impacts across real estate and the energy sector and so on and so forth. I mean, real estate and energy have both been big topics. Um, we're in a bit of a downturn in, in the real estate market um, for several different reasons, but that's been a big story. Um, and, uh, um, you know, the overall overall economy um, is something I keep a close eye on, which, uh, you know, Vietnam is still growing pretty healthily by many standards, but had a bit of a down year last year, as did many countries. But yeah, those are some of the big kind of long-term trends that I've been watching. Yeah. I've, and You know, and I was just telling you before the podcast, but I'll say it again, Mike, your Vietnam Weekly is just so helpful to get an idea, an understanding of what is happening in Vietnam, as you said, not only on tourism, but also that wider picture, what's happening politically, what's happening economically. So um, I will definitely drop the link um, to go subscribe there for our listeners. So um, 2023, it was the first full year of travel and tourism after the pandemic both for Vietnam and across Southeast Asia. So how would you sum up Vietnam's recovery path so far when it comes to international travel? It's been okay. Um, so the, the official statistic is about 12, 12.5, 12.6 million international tourists last year um, against a target of 8 million, which of course on paper sounds quite good. Um, but I will note, 
even domestic media has been quite, there's been a lot of coverage about how even with that number, um, the tourism sector is still kind of struggling. Uh, I mean, there's been a lot of talk here about that was only 44% of the pre-pandemic uh, inbound tourism rate, whereas Malaysia and Thailand, for example, I think either reached their pre-pandemic numbers or came very close, which officials and, tour- and people in the tourism sector here seem to often use Thailand as a, as a benchmark uh, for better or worse um, when it comes to international tourism. So again, I mean, they, they exceeded their target, uh, but there's been, st- even with that, there's been a lot of coverage of um, you know, businesses and really popular destinations like Huayan, for example, um, you know, hotels, hotel owners having to sell their businesses due to poor business. Um, a lot of, uh, po- you know, popular destinations where small businesses are kind of struggling, um, even with international tourism, at least on paper, you know, looking pretty good. Um, but I think it, again, when you come to the regional comparison, that's where um, Vietnam is still uh, by their standards, at least, is still struggling a little bit. Again, I'm not saying you Vietnam needs to um, mimic Thailand in terms of numbers, but that is kind of the goal they set sometimes. Um, and it's still been a slow, slow recovery overall. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, it is a, a regionally a very competitive marketplace. In terms of the inbound markets to Vietnam in 2023, Mike, which, which were the top ones? Uh, so South Korea, China, and the US, I believe, were the top three. I mean, South Korea and China have long been kind of the dominant inbound markets. Japan is also important. Um, and I, I think we may get to this a little later, uh, or I guess I can get it into it now, but China um, had, is down. I mean, it, it's down for everybody, um, given kind of their a bit delayed reopening and economic conditions there as well. Uh, still an important market. And then Southeast Asia has also turned into a pretty important market, or I guess it always has been, but there's been a lot of Visitors from Thailand and Cambodia, of, of course, it's easy for kind of ASEAN, you know, member states to travel between the other. Um, and India has also emerged as a key, at least in terms of marketing, um, kind of draw, trying to draw more Indian tourists. I know there was some talk last year about how popular Food Walk was, for example, at least for a period among Indian tourists. I think a couple of wealthy or famous Indian families had weddings there, uh, which drew some interest. But still, Northeast Asia is pretty dominant inbound market with the U.S. Uh, also important. And then Europe, I think, by and large dropped um, in many cases. I mean, again, the economic conditions in Europe have been a bit worse than in the U.S. So that that would help explain that. Yeah, and I think the Australian market, I mean, it, it's still small, but I think it, that might have even surpassed pre-pandemic levels, I think, due to that kind of extra connectivity between Vietnam and Australia and, and that was being operated. Yeah, uh, that's a good good point. But there are yeah uh, pretty easy direct flights from I know at the very least Ho Chi Minh City to multiple cities in Australia, with which certainly helps. Yeah, so I wanted to circle back a bit. I mean, the Chinese market, and as we as we all know, it's such a big market, not only for Vietnam but for everywhere else, and it has had a very low recovery level. But I mean, saying that you know you were just talking about how Vietnam's tourism recovery last year it was fairly strong i think when when you compare to some some of the other countries you were, you were saying malaysia malaysia is actually a little bit lower than um than, than what the media would let on um thailand certainly doing okay um but do you think that vietnam could see a full recovery without a full chinese tourist recovery are, are you seeing perhaps that the market is starting to look towards other source markets and kind of diversify away from china uh, there's certainly been a lot of talk of diversifying. Um, whether that's being executed is certainly up for debate. 
some of the visa waivers that they've implemented, which is largely focused, uh, includes a lot of um, Russian or sorry, European con- countries are certainly pushing for uh, the EU and North America. Um, and still with a focus on Northeast Asia. And as, as I said, kind of like a look at India, but in terms of execution, that's more mixed. Um, there's, I mean, I mean, again, in domestic tourism, there's pretty much direct quotes from people in the travel industry saying, you know, there, there really is no like long-term overarching strategy for, for Vietnam. Um, it's kind of, you know, travel companies marketing to who they want to try to market to with a bit of not much, not much direction from, from the top, if that makes any sense. Um, so a full, a full recovery without China, just given the pure numbers that they had before the pandemic will be difficult. Of course, that, that gets into kind of, you know, a debate in a lot of places. One that I would say I'm not an expert on over the, you know, the economic benefits of mass uh, tourism from China, given that, you know, it's a lot of kind of package tours and, th- and things like that. And there's certainly been issues here with um, Chinese tour groups, you know, using Chinese tour guides or kind of only going to businesses perhaps managed um, by Chinese nationals or something along those lines, which I know is not unique to Vietnam. But so there, that's kind of a whole other debate. But in terms of pure numbers, it will be difficult, certainly, for other markets to kind of fill in that gap. Yeah, those are good points, Mike. Let's let's switch focus uh, slightly to the domestic tourism market now. Vietnam has a big potential market. I think it was last year or the year before it joined the 100 million club. It has a population of, of 100 million. What are you seeing in the domestic tourism market? Are there any new patterns of demand, any key issues? You know, how, how did you see that recovery in 2023? Yeah, so that's been another one where the numbers were strong. I, I think, you know, that domestic tourists officially was 100, 108 million, which also exceeded the, the government target. Now, I, I will say the caveat, I don't, quite know how they determine the, those figures. Um, my understanding is, for example, they don't count, like there's no distinction between, when it comes to foreigners, there's no distinction between foreign residents being domestic tourists or international tourists. So uh, that, that set, setting that aside, um, still healthy, um, but again, not the same kind of growth that was maybe anticipated. As I referenced earlier, last year was a bit of a down year economically. Um, exports were down, which is a, a key sector. And with the real estate market being largely frozen, to be honest. Um, a lot of people have had reduced income or, or, or laid off, for example. Um, so kind of less le- um, less maybe travel across the country, maybe going. To, so I think in terms of patterns, um, we've had some new expressways open up, particularly one connecting Ho Chi Minh City to Phan Thiet and Moine, which are popular beach destinations. So it, it's, you know, it used to be around five hours to get there by car. And now it's, if traffic is okay, two, two and a half. And the North, they've had some new expressways open as well. So kind of more focus on places you can drive, um, especially as, I mean, it's kind of been a bit of a vicious circle, but airfares keep increasing. So people aren't flying. So airlines are cutting domestic routes, which makes the rates go even higher. You know, there's been stories about how at times you could fly from Hanoi to Bangkok for less money than Hanoi to Phu Quoc, even though obviously it's in the same country. So I think kind of an emphasis on places you could drive to with improved infrastructure in some areas, less maybe interest or ability to spend on flying. And I mean, we can get to Phu Quoc, but certainly a bit of a um, less interest in going to Phu Quoc for a variety of reasons. That's really interesting about the the driving and how that's changed the 
the patterns of tourism. And with the economic downturn that you were talking about last year, is that set to continue this year as well? Do you, do you think we're going to see the same kind of focus on wanting to travel more domestically, wanting to, to drive? Or do you think that that might shift a little bit as we move um, throughout the year? Um, so, I mean, a lot of the economics will kind of depend on the global economic situation since export, uh, you know, manufacturing for export is so important here. Um, most of what I've seen is that experts generally think that will improve, um, which, of course, is good for Vietnam. And, you know, obviously a lot can change <laughs> um, in, in terms of what, what's going on around the world. But if exports pick up, that will certainly help. The real estate market is kind of a big question mark. And I, I realize it might seem odd to link that to tourism, but it does impact people who work in that sector, of course, and have in their disposable income. And then the airline sector is facing a lot of problems, which I know there's, uh, I think you want to talk about as well, but Bamboo Air is potentially on the verge of bankruptcy. They're, they're, they kind of keep euphemistically calling it a restructuring, but they've cut all of their international flights. They've cut a number of domestic flights. Um, they've laid off dozens of pilots and um, air crew. So their future is in doubt. Um, that's actually linked to the anti-corruption scandal. The chairman of their parent company uh, was arrested about a year and a half or a couple of years ago for stock market manipulation. Vietnam Airlines is still going through losses. Of course, they will not go out of business. They're the, you know, the national flag carrier. But that with Bamboo struggling, that kind of just leaves Vietnam Airlines and Vietjet, who will, I mean, they'll both you know, be, be fine. But that's a big question mark. So if, you know, if domestic airfares remain high, that will certainly deter, um, you know, flying trips, especially with the economy still. It, it's okay. It's not, the economy is far from a disaster, especially compared to a lot of countries, but is down compared to what Vietnam has been used to. Yeah, interesting point you mentioned about the airlines, Mike. You mentioned there the issues with uh, Bamboo Airways. You also mentioned uh, Vietjet and Vietnam Airlines. I think the aviation regulator is forecasting that this year the number of domestic air passengers could drop about 8%, which is that's quite a significant number. I mean, is that a temporary blip? Is that a more permanent trend? And you mentioned also, you know, high prices for domestic travel. That, that's quite a controversial issue too. You know, why is that? What are the drivers behind that? Yeah, it's a good... Uh, I was kind of a bit struck by... I mean, of course, you know, I would hope they would... <laughs> report their forecast, but to, to report a, or to forecast a decline like that is, um, it was pretty striking, you know, for a country with a growing economy and growing tourism and what have you. Um, yeah, so clearly, I mean, back to the previous question, it, it seems that it's probably likely that, you know, reduced demand for flying will continue. And again, it's a bit of a, a vicious circle, you know, prices are high, so people are flying less. And because people are flying less, airlines are cutting routes, so then prices go higher. Um, and there's, you know, there's, it is controversial. There's been a lot of questions asked about why why are these airfares so high? Um, I, to be fair, I don't. This isn't my area of expertise. I don't know what exactly the government can do in terms of anything. To you know, VHS a private company. Um, they there's not really a whole lot that can be done about airfares on their side. I don't think. But with yeah, reduced demand. I mean, I would think that would push airfares again even higher. And there's been a lot of talk with. Uh, so Tet Lunar New Year is uh, three, two or three weeks away, and airfares airlines keep adding more flights. The, you know the government has allowed them to run flights overnight. Um, basically, every so this is kind of the one exception to reduce demand for flights. Basically, everything is booked, but prices are extremely high. There was an article yesterday I was saying you know even the overnight flights, which you think would be 
have a little less demand and maybe lower prices are, are exceedingly expensive. Now for Ted, it's the most important holiday. I think a lot of people will kind of be willing to, to accept that extra cost, but for the rest of the year that, you know, that that's not going to be the case. So it does seem like it could potentially be certainly this year. I mean, if, if things really turn around in terms of the economy, say 2025, then sure. I'm sorry. I'm sure it could pick up again. Um, I'm sure I'm sure people hope for that, considering how many new airports are planned over the next decade or so. Um, but it does seem like this is a pretty, at least in the short term, big shift away from perhaps flying as much um, and maybe f- more focus on driving or, or simply not traveling. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I was looking at this, the stats on um, air passengers and I can't remember, but I think domestically, Vietnam actually hit back pre-pandemic levels really, really soon into the pandemic and then it started to decline. I think it's one of the, the few countries in Southeast Asia where we've, we've seen that, right, where it exceeded and now it's like gradually on the decline. And I just wonder whether that is also just that leveling off, you know, of, of the demand. Like during the pandemic, borders were closed. People had to travel domestically. And so they were doing that. Um, and now they've got more options. They can go overseas if they want. And maybe that's just that slight decline in demand. I don't know. But yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear all of these other... Um, factors that are going on in Vietnam as well. So talking about traveling outside of Vietnam, um, Vietnam, I think, actually exceeded its pre-pandemic levels of visitors to Japan um, last year. Have you got any any guesses why, why that could be, why there's this sudden uh, surge of interest to go to Japan? Um, I think Japan has always been popular. I mean, my, my understanding is that outbound tourism in general did quite well. I think it doubled from last year or something along those lines. Um, so people, clearly people with the money to travel uh, internationally are taking advantage of that. Um, but I mean, Japan has a lot of, which I mean, I, I believe is also kind of doing very well tourism wise for like everyone wants to go there <laughs> is my understanding, not just in Vietnam. So I have perhaps some sense of, you know, wanting to go where a lot of other people are going. Um, and I mean, Japan just has a lot of appeal. It has a lot of, um, uh, it has very close socioeconomic ties here. Um, Japanese music and movies, maybe not as popular as Korean ones, but there's a lot of interest in Japan. I, I will say Japan and South Korea are both like very popular in terms of uh, you know places that people look to go, and because they have a, a good bit of cultural sway here as well. Um, so I think it's just emerged as a, a nice place that people people really want to check out. Yeah, I would agree with that, Mike. I think you're right. Absolutely. That, you know, that, that, that stands across the region, particularly Korea, particularly Japan. They are really, really hot destinations. Um, let, let's switch tracks slightly. Let's talk about travel infrastructure development, which is a red hot topic in Vietnam. It was before the pandemic uh, and it is again now. Let's look at um, airport capacity. So Vietnam published a, a national master plan which called for 30 airports by 2030. I think that's up from around about 23 at present. You've been reporting on this quite a lot, particularly regarding the major delays of the new airports. Um, can you just tell us a little bit more about this? Because it is a big topic, isn't it? It is. It's very big. I mean, it's, it's critical for what Vietnam wants to do with tourism in the future. And I mean, of course, has is a little bit off topic, but has you know knock-on effects on um carbon emissions and, and all that sort of stuff with if there, you have more people flying. But yeah, there, so that, I mean, there, there is this master plan um, with more airports and there, there has been some 
some, there have been some positive developments. I know Huey added a new terminal that opened up in the last few months. Um, Dan Bien Phu just reopened their airport after upgrading that. But it's a real mixed bag. I mean, you have, there's places like Kanto, for example, that technically have international airports, but don't even have much like domestic uh, flight activity. I mean, it's a, so it's a real mix where you go to some places and, you know, that they have two gates and they're pretty quiet. And then here in Ho Chi Minh City, of course, and then in Hanoi are um, overcapacity uh, perennially, you know, poor facilities. They just can't keep up with uh, how much demand there is. I mean, that both domestic and international. And then, yeah, I mean, kind of the big one is Long Pan International Airport, which is supposed to be Ho Chi Minh City's future hub, although it's in a neighboring province, but kind of modeled after Bangkok or Kuala Lumpur, where you have this huge international hub outside of the city. I think it's about 50 kilometers uh, from downtown Ho Chi Minh City as the crow flies. Uh, but that's been, you know, it's take, it took them forever to, they're still clearing the land for it. They have started like proper construction, um, but they have kind of a, a frankly, a comical uh, deadline at this point of opening in 2026, which, you know, everyone knows will certainly will not happen. And that, that's only for the first terminal. I know it's, it's um, in a couple of decades anticipated to have capacity of, I think, 100 million passengers per year. Um, but that's a long, long way off. And yeah, I mean, there's issues with um, highway access to the site. There's no, like, I mean, they planned it for there to be a train connection at some point, but that's many, many years away. They haven't even finalized a route or anything. So unlike Bangkok, Kuala Lumpur, where you have these cities outside of this, airports outside of the city, but a good train train connection, um, we're not going to have that. Um, even if long times the airport itself is delayed, it won't, like, there still won't be a train, even if, even if that's late. So yeah, that's a big problem because I mean, if you've flown through Tan San Yat, you know, it's not a very nice place, uh, particularly the, the domestic terminal, you know, sometimes even for international flights, you have to, the plane parks on the tarmac and you have to take a bus to the terminal, which it's not the end of the world, but if you're trying to attract visitors, especially first time visitors, that's not a nice place, a nice way to be welcomed um, to, you know, what's supposed to be a major hub. Uh, and then there's, you know, smaller places like Fantia. They've talked about an airport for years. Um, the ground is cleared and I think they're building the military aspect of it, but the civilian part still doesn't have a contractor or anything. I mean, it's debatable whether Fantia needs an airport, especially now that it's connected to Ho Chi Minh City by highway, but nonetheless, that's the plan. But yeah, you, you end up with these sort of long-term plans where nearly every province wants an airport, but many of them really don't need it. Um, there's just not the demand for it. And then, you know, these bottlenecks at major hubs, especially Ho Chi Minh City, Hanoi is not quite as bad, um, but the airport situation here is... Uh, dire is a strong word, but um, poor, <laughs> especially compared to some of the big regional peer cities that it wants to catch up with. Yeah, that's interesting. And you know, it, it seems like every couple of weeks, Mike, you're writing about more delays at Long Tan Airport. So it's, it's, it's one of those things that I can see is just dragging and dragging and dragging on. And like you say, has, has a big impact, doesn't it, on, um, on tourism and on the economy in general? Yeah. And I mean, of course, it, it's not just for you know, foreign tourists either. Like, you know, I don't think Vietnamese enjoy, um, you know, traveling, having to take a bus across the terminal and sitting in a crowded waiting gate and all that. Um, and yeah, so we, we, we shall see when it comes to, to Long Tan. So switching to rail then, um, and high-speed rail is, you know, one of these these 
buzzwords getting a lot of media coverage around the region. Uh, but so far, only Indonesia in Southeast Asia actually has a true high-speed rail in place. Um, Thailand's set to be next. Again, there always seem to be lots of proposals about this north-south high-speed rail in Vietnam, maybe cross-border services with China. Um, so where are we at with all of that right now and what might happen next? Um, so still just talk, um, a lot of talk. Um, I mean, it, it's a shame because, I mean, in many ways, uh, I mean, I've written about this, but Vietnam is sort of ideal for high-speed rail. Um, it's, you know, a long, narrow country. Um, most of the major cities are kind of on the coastal plains where one line, I mean, as the current rail line does, connect, could connect most population areas sort of without needing any branches or um, anything like that. You know, most of the biggest mountains that would present engineering challenges are away from the coast. So I'm not saying it, obviously it's not an easy project, but certainly you wouldn't have to go through, uh, you know, the Northwest Mountains or something like that. But as with so many things currently in Vietnam, it's really difficult. I mean, it, A, it's wildly expensive. I think the estimates are 50 to $60 billion. And of course, that's on paper. So, you know, presumably in real life, it would be even more expensive which Vietnam simply can't afford. I mean, very few countries could afford a project of that cost on their own. So there's been, you know, talk, talk with China, talk with Japan. I think some European countries are looking at potentially supporting this. Um, but it's it's hard it's hard to see much progress happening anytime soon. I mean, um, you know, urban Ho Chi Minh City and Hanoi, for example, have been dealing with hugely delayed metro lines. Um, and a metro line is, of course, a much smaller project than a national high-speed rail system. So that's, you know, a bit concerning <laughs> if you can't, you know, it takes many years and way over budget to build a 20-kilometer metro line compared to a 1,500-kilometer high-speed rail line. Um, so on paper, they have plans to start construction on two priority sections, uh, one between Hanoi and Vinh and one between Ho Chi Minh City and Nha Trang, I believe by 2030. Separately, a private company has proposed a high-speed rail line from Ho Chi Minh City to Canto in the Mekong Delta for something like $10 billion. But um, again, it would be fantastic, I think, to have high-speed rail, especially given how much flying there is between Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh City. Um, this is the, even with reduced demand, it was the fourth busiest route in the world last year, um, which, uh, you know, is doesn't help Vietnam's, um, you know, emissions and things like that. But that's, that's pretty ineffective, especially given the airport capacity issues. But I don't see any way that this there's real movement on high-speed rail anytime soon, unless I hope something changes. But right now, that's not looking likely. That's an interesting wrap-up, Mike. Let's um, talk. You, you referenced earlier Phu Quoc, um, one of the key destinations in Vietnam. It had a pretty mixed media wrap last year, a lot of coverage about overdevelopment, high flight prices, declining service standards. Uh, domestic tourists staying away, that kind of thing. I know that you've been traveling there a bit over the past year or so, but what have you found on the ground? Yeah, I was there right just before New Year's in December. It, you, you're, I mean, you're right, it did have pretty poor, so numbers were down. You know, domestic routes connecting to the island uh, were cut because there just wasn't enough demand. And I, 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 would, I will say, I mean, I've written about this as well, but how there's kind of like, I, I think the perspective of Fuwak, there's a, it's different between domestic or Vietnamese tourists, I'll say, and then international tourists, where people like me, you know, we look at the big resort developments and are kind of shocked by the scale or the design of them. Whereas Vietnamese tourists are much more concerned about, as you said, the high prices, 
Um, it's really generate, generated a reputation for overpriced services, overpriced food, um, just bad, like, I think scams and very poor service uh, for domestic tourists. So that's been a really big turnoff. I mean, a, a lot of that has spread on social media and, and scared people off. It has some real, real issues. There's no doubt about that. I do. I try to be nuanced about that because I'm. I'm sure many of you have seen the photos of the, you know, faux Amalfi or, or Venice developments there. Um, are they for me? No, but a lot of people enjoy that. You know, a lot of Vietnamese can't afford to travel to Europe, so if they want to have something that looks like it at home, I'm not going to hold that against them. But they do have issues with certainly overdevelopment. Um, you know, building more than their carrying capacity, especially when it comes to waste management and things like that. I mean, I would hope long-term that maybe some of the companies that have developed there, both foreign and domestic, would be able to, you know, help invest in, um, I don't, you know, waste management solutions and those sorts of things, uh, since that, you know, it's hard for the government to do all that, especially when you're having these huge projects built there. But that's going to be, uh, it's going to be challenging for them to recover from that. I mean, the island government has is taking some effort to, to kind of crack down on overcharging and those sorts of things. But, it, you know, reputations take a long time to shake off. Um, and again, if airfares continue to be high, uh, you know, if you can fly from Hanoi to uh, Phuket for cheaper than to Phu Wok, uh, that's, that's going to be a problem for, for businesses on Phu Wok. Yeah, absolutely. Then it's a, non, a no-brainer, isn't it? Then oh, well, we might as well go overseas then. Yeah. And sorry, you asked what I had seen there. I mean, it is like, it's still, despite all the bad coverage, like parts of the island are like absolutely gorgeous. Um, so it, it, I'm, I don't want to make it sound like it's all been ruined, um, but they do definitely have uh, some challenges to, to, to deal with. The overdevelopment issues is, is not just limited to Fuwok though, right? It's perhaps in areas like Halong Bay as well. Is that becoming more of a real concern in Vietnam? So for Halong Bay, it's I think it's more of a waste management, or at least from what I've heard, um, kind of you know people just seeing trash everywhere, both on the coast and in in the water itself. Um, I think there was some program last year where the local government tried to get uh, floating fish farms to move away from using styrofoam containers to like hold up to keep the farms floating, um, and that I think ended up resulting in a lot of farmers just chucking the styrofoam into the bay, um, which ended up all over the place. Certainly how long city has become quite developed. Uh, there's some pretty big, uh, developments there largely aimed at the domestic market. Um, so how long bay I'm not as concerned about, I mean, again, it certainly has its challenges, but in terms of numbers, I think is okay. I mean, I'm not sure if they could figure out ways to like disperse the boats a bit more because I do see complaints about kind of all the boats going to the same place. And then again, that would you know put pressure on other parts of the bay that maybe don't have that at the moment. But Halong Bay, I, I I hope has a bit of a better handle on things, or maybe it's a bit more clear like what needs to be done and to kind of avoid further um, complaints from tourists. But yeah, I mean then then there's. You know, other destinations like Dalat kind of dealing with overdevelopment or over urbanization. Um, Saba has some issues. I mean, a lot, I think a lot of these places, it's waste management is kind of the big challenge. I mean, you see so many stories about beaches covered in trash and things like that. Granted, not all of that comes from within Vietnam, but that's a, a really big issue that, again, the government is certainly aware of it. Not an easy solution, um, but hopefully at some point we'll start to see some, some progress on that. Mike, it's been great talking to you today. A really, really in-depth dive into some key issues across the country. Thanks so much for your insights. Before we wrap up, uh, we have to ask you 
uh, about this year for yourself personally. So where are you traveling to this year? Where's on your bucket list in Vietnam and beyond? Um, so right now, uh, so I'm going to, speaking of Japan, I'm going to Japan <laughs> for the Tet holiday, which I'm excited about. I've only, I've only been there once before and absolutely loved it. I have a brief trip to Hong Kong planned, but within Vietnam, um, I hope to make it up to Hanoi at some point. I actually didn't go at all last year, which might've been the first time since I moved here that I didn't go to Hanoi in a calendar year, but I always enjoy going there, you know, eating the food and, um, just seeing friends. I mean, bucket list, I do someday. I want to uh, go visit Song Dung, the, the cave in central Vietnam that is currently the largest known cave in the world. So I think that probably the top of my bucket list. I don't think it'll happen this year, but that's certainly uh, where <laughs> the place I most want to go uh, within Vietnam someday. Nice. I think it's already sold out, right, for this year, I read. So that might be bucket list 2025. Probably. I mean, thankfully, that's... Uh, yeah, I mean, that Phong Nha, thankfully, is one of the big success stories thus far of kind of responsible tourism management, which would be ni- nice to see more of uh, kind of in other parts of the country, if possible. Yeah, absolutely. But as a result, they do limit tourists and it's, yeah, it fills up. <laughs> right. Well, with that, um, thank you so much, Mike. Um, and that brings us to the end of today's show. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. And don't forget to send us your thoughts and comments on what we discussed with Mike or what we missed out. You can message us on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Yep. Meanwhile, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, the seasiatravelshow.com or you can search for the show on any international podcast platform. So that's a wrap for today. We'll both be in Vientiane Laos next week for the ASEAN Tourism Forum, but we look forward to talking more travel and tourism in Southeast Asia with you soon.